going to invite you to open now to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to begin a new series here in 1 Timothy. And if you need a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats nearby. And so I invite you to take one of those and uh, turn with us there. You're welcome to keep the Bible if you need one. But it's good to follow along in, in the scripture. And there's, there's just, it helps to see uh, the text and um, to understand where this is coming from. Because the truth we need is in God's word. That is what, what guides us. And so I'm going to invite you to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I want to just highlight here as we get started, verses 5 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. 1 Timothy is towards the end of the New Testament, and there's a collection of short letters there. Um, I don't have the page number for you. I apologize. But let's look at verses 5 through 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Gracious Father, I pray that you would open your word to our hearts today and that we would receive from you. Um, God, we want to understand correctly what it is you're saying. Lord, help us to approach you with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So summer is ending and kids are back in school we're starting up the Wednesday programs this week with the uh, Christian Life Club and Bible quizzing and youth group and the new adult Bible study. So it's, it's a new year. I really feel like this is when new things start for us in the church. And um, so we have these rhythms of the calendar. They keep things fresh. They keep things interesting. And I think it's a good time for us also to launch here into a new series of messages, a new sermon series. And I want us to, to focus this series on the letter to the first letter to Timothy. And as I look back over my records in 17 years of preaching, I don't know that I've preached maybe more than once or twice in all that time from first Timothy. But as I look out, I see Chuck Miller here, and I remember my first study in 1 Timothy was in the class he taught at Pseudo Christian years and years and years ago. He taught us inductive Bible study, and we did it with 1 Timothy in hand. And some of those, those truths that we, we learned all those years ago have still stuck with me. And I'm excited about digging in now, in these weeks ahead, to this little letter. Uh, First Timothy is part of what we know as the pastoral uh, epistles or the pastoral letters. There were three that that Paul wrote, first and second Timothy and Titus. Um, if you look at the letters Paul writes that are in the Bible, most of them are addressed to churches, addressed to cities. But these are addressed to people, Timothy and to Titus. And um they are in some ways open letters, though. They're personal. They're personal to an individual, but they're open because we get to, we get to listen in 
on what was said. We get to see what Paul was saying. And they're important uh, because they show us how the first churches were to be overseen and how they were to be organized and, and how the leaders were to be selected. And they emphasize the importance of good teaching and good leadership. The churches back then faced some of the same threats that churches today face. The threat from bad leaders and the threat from bad teaching. Bad leaders who teach bad doctrine. So this is a danger that continues to the present day, and I'm concerned that the problem is probably getting worse, not better. And that churches, like a lot of other organizations, are struggling to find qualified leaders. And um, it's just, it's, it's, it's concerning to me as I, I see what's happening uh, those who often attend churches are less interested in the qualifications of their pastors. That often if a leader has charisma, good communication skills, uh, a, a track record of effectiveness or generating a following, then they've passed the test. But what Paul outlines here in these pastoral letters is something different, a different kind of test. I'm concerned when I keep hearing that Bible colleges and seminaries are facing uh, declines in enrollment. Some are even closing because fewer and fewer students are seeking training for the ministry. And maybe even more disconcerting is this uh, even newer trend of ignoring pastoral leadership entirely. I'm hearing more and more about church plants that are being started up without any consideration of even needing a pastor. Uh, what does that say? Where does that point us? So let me just say from the outset, as we get into this study of 1 Timothy, that it's imperative that we as a local church... And let me emphasize local church, which means we can't assume somebody else uh, somewhere else is going to take care of this. We, as a local church, must understand the need for qualified leadership and sound doctrinal teaching. And the book of First Timothy has a lot to say about these things. Now, in this matter of sound doctrine, I'm excited because uh, we've also started a new Sunday school quarter. With everything else starting new, we're starting a new quarter in Sunday school. I invite you to come. Hope you can uh, be a part of one of the classes. But I get to teach one of the classes on 16 questions about basic Christian doctrine. And this is fun. I enjoy this. We started today with the doctrine of the Trinity. And wow, is that complicated and challenging, but important. And I especially hope it will inspire and ground the next generation to carry the torch of God's truth and right doctrine into the next generation. Or on this matter of sound church leadership, I have been thinking more and more lately about how blessed we are here at Holland Free Methodist and um, the leadership legacy that we have. And I, I look out and I see Joe and Sue Conklin Leaders that have been with us for such a long time. I think about Jim and Sue Carnes. I mean, you guys go back to the Hall Street Church days. That was in the 60s. And to think about the faithful leadership you have provided through so many different ways of teaching and leading. We are blessed. I look out and I see 
Pastor Roger Lewis and, and, and Bev Lewis here. And I realized the legacy of leadership that God has blessed us with 19 years. Pastor Lewis led us from the mid 70s to the mid 90s. And uh, to, to, to have you with us here in worship today, I mean, it is a blessing. It is a blessing to me. We had breakfast a few weeks ago and what an encouragement it was. And I, I just, it's such a gift to have this kind of of leadership legacy here and continuing to encourage and to counsel and to pray. Thank you. But what about the next generation? What about the next 65 years? If we do not hold fast to what the word of God says, we will be in big, big trouble. And Timothy here is careful instruction and guidance for us for that road ahead. Now, as we get into 1 Timothy, we're going to find out there's some challenging things here that he tackles, some things that are going to require some explanation. Not all of it's going to be easy to plow through, but we have to hold fast to the... Uh, Message of 2 Timothy 3.16, which states all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is our foundation. That is our confidence. And that is what we turn to. So let's uh, begin our study here of 1 Timothy by looking at the first two verses together. This is the introduction to this letter. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is the greeting, the introduction. It's personal, but it's open. We get to hear it. We get to see it. Um, and Paul describes Timothy here as my true child in the faith. My true child in the faith. Paul has known Timothy for a long time. He's worked with him for a long time. The connection here goes back, uh, way back. Paul has invited Timothy to join with him on some of his missionary journeys. He's been a part of his ministry. Paul knows Timothy's family. He knew his mother, who was Jewish, his father, who was Greek. He knew his grandmother, he even mentions her by name in 2 Timothy. Her name was Lois. Paul has a deep connection to Timothy and his family. And he refers to him here as his true child in the faith. But eventually, uh, Paul appoints Timothy to settle in to Ephesus. Ephesus was an important city. It was an important early church. And Paul wants Timothy to be there as the pastor to lead that congregation. So he appoints him to that place, but Timothy is struggling. He's facing some tough tests of leadership, and he's tempted to give up. So Paul's first words right out of the blocks to him in this letter, as soon as he's done with his introduction, he says this in verse 3. He says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, or as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Now, there's not a period there, but let's just put a period right there. Let's stop there for a second. His first instruction to this young leader is remain. Stay where you are. Don't give up. 
It's clear that Timothy is struggling. And this leads us to what I think is a primary application for, for this morning. And that is, are you feeling the pressure to leave something today? Are you feeling the pressure to give up something today? Are you being tested by your circumstances? Are you feeling the desire to cut and run? You know, I realize there are times we need to. I just resigned a position this week. I wasn't planning to do it, but I did. I thought about it. I prayed about it. I believe it was the right thing to do. There are times when we have to shake the dust off our feet and move on. Jesus even said that. But most of the time when somebody asks for my advice, should I leave or, 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 or stay? I usually say stay because I know our natural tendency is to leave. Our tendency is to cut and run. Perseverance is difficult, but it's what we usually need uh, when we face challenges. This is the era of the great resignation, isn't it? How many of you uh, uh, maybe work somewhere where you're struggling because so many people have, have left one job for another? Uh, many are, are moving about, and the temptation to leave is often strong. We need to hear then sometimes that challenge to remain. Certainly, it's true in marriage or in parenting or in friendships, or in church life. The instruction here from Paul to Timothy is remain at Ephesus. Paul doesn't want Timothy giving up just because the going is tough. And why is that? Why does Paul need Timothy there at this time? Well, look at verse 3 again. The rest of verse 3 and into verse 4, he says, I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So for Timothy, he needs to stay because there are people there who are teaching wrong doctrine. They're turning to myths. They're getting caught up in the speculative things rather than the solid foundation of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And what they really need, instead of these myths and speculations and wrong doctrines, is what Paul describes here in verse 5. This is our key text here for this morning. He says, the aim, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If you write in your Bible, underline that sentence. And if you picked up a Bible from the seat beside you, underline that sentence. It'd be glad to have it underlined and highlighted there. This is one of the most powerful three-point sermons in a sentence that you'll ever find. Paul's reminding Timothy that genuine leadership and teaching is always an expression of love. It is an expression of love for God and for others. It's the great commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the charge, he says. And how do we know this comes to us? Genuinely, Paul says it comes from a heart that is pure, a conscience that is good, and a faith that is sincere. And when these three things are true of us, 
understand we can endure any trial. We don't need to cut and run. We don't need to find greener grass. We don't need to give up, even though things seem like a mess. If our aim is to love God and others from a heart that is pure, a conscience that is good, and a faith that is sincere, he will be with us all the way through. Now, I get the sense that Timothy was feeling underqualified for the task that he faced. Uh, that comes through further on in the letter. Paul has to kind of uh, tell him, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Timothy is feeling underqualified. And I think we've all felt that experience from time to time in the fat challenges that we face. We don't always feel like we measure up. Maybe we don't feel like we measure up as the leader we should be. We don't have the charisma or the skill or the high energy or the track record of success. And I imagine there were other leaders in Ephesus who may have been running circles around young Timothy. But Paul says, don't measure yourself by those standards. Here's the measure you should use. Is your heart pure? Is your conscience good? And is your faith sincere? At this point, some might decide the world's standards are easier to meet. At least you can fake them. But this is where the power of the gospel comes in. We don't make our heart pure. We don't make our conscience good. We don't make our faith sincere. It's not a program we undertake. It's not a set of rules that we make sure we follow. It's a matter of surrender. It's a matter of trust. It's a matter of relying completely on the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we surrender our self-will. We surrender our demands for pleasure or satisfaction or success by the world's standards. We trust God's perfect will. We trust that the joy of the Lord will be enough for us. We trust that our future is in his hands. And we persevere. And we do this through faith in Jesus Christ. He showed us the way. And now we can't miss the fact that he was crucified when he showed us the way. It wasn't easy. This isn't going to be a cakewalk. But he also rose again from the dead. And he showed us the way through. So are we clear so far? Are we understanding what the main point is? Is your heart pure? Is your conscience good? Is your faith sincere? These are what we need. This is what we strive for. These are the standards that God calls us to. And that he is the one by his grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ that provides this for us as we surrender our hearts to him. So let's keep moving. There's another important point here in this passage that I want us to see, because I want us to continue through verse 11. If we don't see Jesus in all of this, then what we see is the law. And the law is what these false teachers have been mishandling and teaching incorrectly. So Paul's warning continues. Verse 6, he says, Certain persons... By swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. 
So there are some who are teaching incorrectly. They are swerving from the teaching, from teaching the love for God and for others and focusing instead on teaching the law as the basis of, 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 of their, their doctrine. Paul is talking here about the Old Testament law, what we find in the first five books of the Old Testament. And these teachers are saying that the way to God, the way to salvation is through adherence to that law. They might say that your good deeds need to outweigh your bad deeds. They might say that God is sizing you up to see if you pass his test. They then lay out all kinds of rules or regulations or principles to follow to get on the right side with God. And Paul is saying, beware. When teachers do this, they don't understand the law or what it's for. And then there's a little bit more to the application here because there are lots of ways to mishandle the law and the teaching of the law. Think of the, some of the more subtle ways this can happen. If, if we say, do these things and you'll be successful. Or if we say, follow these five steps and, 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 and your problems will be overcome. Or maybe we say, um, just, just apply these seven principles to your life and see what changes. If we aren't careful, we can start mixing up law with salvation or the, 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 the transformation that the gospel should bring. And we're constantly bombarded by every, in every direction with, by teachers who say, you know, just, just take these steps, do these things, get your life in order, and you'll, you'll have um, all kinds of people lining up to hear it. Um, and it'll be popular, and you'll be successful. But isn't in that also a form of legalism, a kind of rules-based living? Uh, some practical advice? Sure. I'm not putting that down. But is that the ultimate answer that we need? When what Paul reminds us of is the most important thing, the charge of love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So verses 8 through 11 help clear things up. Look at verse 8. He says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which, with which I have been entrusted. As you look at that list, it's kind of interesting to see these vices that Paul puts down there and the order in which he puts them. They almost line up with the Ten Commandments especially Numbers 5 through 10. He says, those who strike their fathers and their mothers, well, that's a violation of the fifth commandment, to honor your father and your mother. For murderers, well, that's a violation of the sixth commandment about murder. The sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality, that's a violation of the seventh commandment about sexual sin. And enslavers is the capturing and selling of slaves, a violation of the eighth commandment about stealing. Liars and perjurers violate the ninth commandment about lying. But the point here is that the law is not what makes us righteous. The law is not what um, 
brings us back to God. The law catches us in our sin. It calls us back to God. It wakes us up to our need for forgiveness and to grace. And so then it needs to draw us to the gospel, to hear the truth that Jesus saves, that he died so that we can be forgiven and made new. I like how Phil Williams puts it. He said, the law is the light that reveals how dirty the room is, not the broom that sweeps it clean. And so we need that light to show us oftentimes where we have fallen short, where we have failed, where we're heading for the rocks and we're going to shipwreck our lives. But it's not what saves us. It's Jesus that does that. And certainly so much of Paul's ministry up to this point has been devoted to pointing this out. The law doesn't make us holy. The law doesn't fix our problems. Jesus and the Holy Spirit transform us, make us new. Jeremiah 31, 33 prophesied the day when God would put the law in our hearts. And that day has now come. So the aim here is to live with the law in our hearts, to love God, to love others with a pure heart, a conscience that is good, and a sincere faith. And I think Timothy needed to hear those words because he didn't want to remain in Ephesus. It was getting difficult for him there. And so I ask you, what struggle are you facing right now? What would you like to get out from under? What are you tempted to flee? You could cut and run. That's one option. You could also choose to play the world's game and work harder, fight harder, try to come out on top if you can. Or third, you can hear the word of Jesus, the message of life. Surrender to him, trust him, and through his grace, receive the renewing of your heart, mind, pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Gracious Lord, I pray that you would help us understand the thing that matters most in the midst of that situation, that conflict, that struggle that we want to get away from as much as possible. Lord, help us to endure with the love that you pour into our lives. Lord, as we surrender our wills to you, I pray that we would have that pure heart, that good conscience, and that sincere faith. Lead us, I pray, as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. This time, I'm going to invite you to take a hymnal, and I need to go grab one myself. I see one here. 789 in the very back of the hymnal. This is our... I'm sorry, 759. You'd think after all these years I'd get the number correct. 759. We're going to take some time to share together in the Lord's Supper. And if you are a guest with us today, understand that we welcome you to join with us. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, if you trust him for forgiveness and mercy, and if you live in peace with others, we welcome you to the table here with us. We're going to first serve the bread. And then um, once you have that, I'll kind of give you the instructions and we'll, we'll, we'll take that bread together and then we'll serve the cups. Um, you can leave the cups on your seat or there'll be little tables by the doors. You can leave them there as well if, on your way out. Um, 
We always have our children with us in the service on these Sundays so that they can see and uh, experience this uh, with us. But um, parents, when you feel your child is ready and understands what they are doing, we invite you to uh, include them in this time. If you ever desire for me to talk with your child uh, to help them understand more what this means and why we do it, I would be uh, delighted to take that time uh, to share with you in that. So let's look at number 759. We're going to follow the abbreviated service, so the sections with the asterisks, and you can join with me on the bold print. You who truly and earnestly repent of your sins, who live in love and peace with your neighbors, and who intend to lead a new life following the commandments of God and walking in his holy ways, draw near with faith and take this holy sacrament to your comfort, humbly kneeling, make honest confession to Almighty God. And let's confess together as we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who with great mercy has promised forgiveness to all who turn to you with hearty repentance and true faith, have mercy upon us. Pardon and deliver us from our sins. Make us strong and faithful in all goodness and bring us to everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are opened, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who gave in love your only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who by his sacrifice offered once and for all, did provide a full, perfect, and sufficient atonement for the sins of the whole world. We come now to your table in obedience to your Son, Jesus Christ, who in his holy gospel commanded us to continue a perpetual memory of his precious death until he comes again. Hear us, O merciful Father, we humbly ask and grant that we, receiving this bread and this cup, as he commanded, and in the memory of his passion and death, may partake of his most blessed body and blood. In the night of his betrayal, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in like manner, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for you and for many, for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. 
I'll invite forward now those who are assisting uh, to serve.